Fatima Qureshi, the Communications Director at Fuji Organization, and this is Justice on Air. In this show, we bring you closer to discussions with advocates, activists, entrepreneurs in Malaysia working to bridge gaps in more ways than just one. Now, today, our guest for the Women Information Series is on a pretty neglected subject matter that many communities in this part of the world don't take seriously. At times, it's even frowned upon or downright undermined. We're talking about mental health. Mental health is still a subject and, in fact, a, an actual health issue that isn't taken as seriously as it should be. The laws are not really taking them into account, enacting them, enforcing them, not just in Malaysia, but in many Asian countries. And we're here to talk to the children's book author, Sabrina Murad, today about how she found herself not just in the space of mental health advocacy, but also in writing. Now, writing is a unique channel of communication and how one can express some issues, especially social issues, to not just people like us, adults, but even children. And I ask her how she does that. Hi, Sabrina. Thanks for joining the podcast with me today. How are you doing? Hello, Fatima. I'm doing very well. Thank you. A little busy with the launching and of my new book, Crowning Glory, about a girl who loses her hair, but she discovers her inner beauty and bravery. Um, so yes, but I'm very happy to be doing this with you today. Well, I'm really excited to even hear about your next book. But for our listeners, the ones that are already familiar with your older books, let's maybe first ta talk about your personal experience with um, mental illness that made you want to become an advocate. You know, I have family members who suffer from mental illness, so I've grown up knowing what it's like for the sufferers, having seen Abba go through it. I know how difficult it is living with someone who has clinical depression, the stigmas and taboos that come with the illness. I've also seen the struggle of finding the right psychiatrist and going through various medical, you know, just concoctions and combinations of uppers and downers to get the right fit for ABBA. So when my sister in Wales told me she had anxiety attacks and clinical depression, I know how difficult it would be for her. Mm. You know, memories of my Abba's depression came flooding back. Right. I was in my teens when Abba, civil servant, director general of the Port Authority in Klang then, suddenly just stopped work. Mm. My siblings and I were not told what it was until much later that he had clinical depression. So we were kept very much in the dark and no one really talked about the illness then. Um, we were just told that if anyone asked to say he wasn't well. I remember passing by Abba's room, seeing him just sitting, staring, with all the curtains drawn. We had to be very quiet in the house. It was very confusing for us then, and I think even more confusing when Abba's relatives came with a Bowmore spiritual healer to, to cure him. I think that was how little we knew about depression, and this was and is the stigma surrounding mental illness then and now, mm. ashamed of what people might think and say if they found out. So I suppose my personal experience prompted me to want to change things, to create aware the awareness and to dispel all these stigmas that have been attached to the mental illness. Mm. So, you know, when it comes to mental illness, people normally talk about psychology, they talk about cures, they talk about medication, but you went down a very creative route. 
Um, you published books, you wrote about it. So what inspired you to write about mental health as a children's book? So for example, for example, let's start with your first creation, The Depressed Cake Shop um, okay. to Malaysia. And you know how you felt many Malaysians still lack knowledge of depression and the other types of mental health issues. So The Depressed Cake Shop, I think you wrote and you know everybody knows that, yes. was set up to educate people about this difficult topic while being able to enjoy eating cake. And you raised over 18,000 ringgits in just two days for the Malaysian Mental Health Association. So what exactly went behind creating this? Well, many things, really. As I mentioned earlier, I was growing up. I remember how confusing it was living with Abba, who had depression, and then realizing it's the same for my sister's three children. So I actually wrote the Grey Bear Days for them and all those children whose parents live with mental illness. So the inspiration for the book actually came about only after the successful charity project, as I you mentioned, The Depressed Cake Shop. It's actually the brainchild of Emma Thomas, also known as Miss Cakehead. Okay. Um, she conceptualized the project. Uh, it's actually a pop-up cake shop where cakes sold were all grey. Um, grey was to create and to create a much-needed awareness about depression and to destigmatize the illness. So at the Kale Depressed Cake Shop, we invited bakers, young and old, home bakers, professional, to bake and donate a grey cake, which is also a metaphor for depression, a grey cake that symbolises what it feels like or look like to have mental illness. And mm. we were very surprised, actually, by the number of creative cakes we received. And it did start that amazing conversation about what would have been a taboo subject. Question like why grey sparked a conversation about dispelling all the myths and taboos surrounding mm. mental illness. Um, and the idea actually behind this grey cake is to challenge a person's perception about what grey cake should look like. So right. just like when, when someone says depression, all sorts of preconceived ideas and stereotypes of persons come into mind. So we want to challenge that because actually, you know, a person with depression, there is no face to it. They look just like you and me, and it could happen to anyone. But what was more meaningful for me was that those who supported our grey pop-up cake shop shared their stories of their own depression or that of a family or friend. I think the plat Kale Depressed Cake Shop gave them a voice, a platform to talk about their experiences in a very relaxed, informal way. There was no shame, there was no stigma, just us listening and understanding the situation they were in. Ever since then, I've really felt very passionate about the cause because in a very right. small way, we've made a, quite a big impact into creating awareness through just the sale of great cakes. And since then, I've then went on to organize a depressed cake shop in Ipoh, Penang, and then in KL again in 2015. And that was a take on the KL, the depressed cake shop called the Depressed Sub Club, where all the cake, where all the food that we saw were grey. Um, it was quite interesting because you had like, well, grey nasi lemak and, you know, mushroom risotto. How did you add the colouring into it? That well, we didn't. It was all sort of natural, like charcoal. We had these wonderful chefs at the Bangkok restaurants, mm -hmm. you know, who created all these things. But it went really well. And in 2018, I published The Grey Bear Days. 
Right. And also organized another KL to Press Cake Shop. And what was really wonderful, I think the thing is when you're doing something that you're passionate about, you know, you get invited to things that you never even thought you could do, actually. <laughs> it's like in later that year, in 2018, um, Narelle, who owns Art Lane, actually, in Penang, in Georgetown, asked us, invited us, actually, to create an art installation for that street lane in Georgetown. And we came up with um, an installation called Faces, okay. where we created faces made of wire. And it was faces of young and old people, boys and girls, men, women, people of different ethnic to show that there is no face of depression because it's so common. One in four mm. will have depression at least once in their lifetime. So it could be you, me, anyone in the room. In writing the story, I really hoped that children would make sense of mental illness because I think even as an adult, it's quite confusing. So it must be even more so for a child. So hopefully this book will make a child, make it easier for a child to understand what depression may be like. Hopefully by sharing this book, we can start that very important conversation right, yes. with a child. And, you know, and I don't think that, that a person is too young to, to talk about something difficult. Because some people, some parents might shy away from this very difficult topic. So if we just take a step back, because you talked about your personal experience and you also talked about it, you know, through the medium of your books and art in general and how that also kind of starts uh, or sparks conversations that are necessary. You mentioned words like stigma. You mentioned word like um, preconceived um, stereotypical notions that people hold. So, you know, what are some of the reasons behind these various, you know, the stigmatization of mental health in Malaysian society, you think? I think... Um in our Asian society, we still hold on to some archaic beliefs such as superstitions and belief in the occult. And these surround mental illness. And in, in our culture, it's like almost associated with mental illness. Mm, so they yeah. don't think of it as mental illness. They think it's something else. So mental illness is often perceived as a result of being cursed by another through black magic mm. or possession by demons or spirits. So instead of getting proper medical treatment, the bomo or spiritual healer or an exorcist is consulted instead. So it's really about a lack of knowledge, I think, and awareness about symptoms of mental illness itself and the different categories of mental illness because it's not just one thing, you mm -hmm. know. And there's also a very negative perception about mental illness. People think that people who have mental illness must be violent or psychotic, which isn't true. Mm. So I think if once we get people to accept that mental health is is real, it's a real illness, and then only will that will then will they seek you know proper treatment for it. So I think that knowledge and the acknowledgement that it is a real illness is the start. I think. So, you know, in our current day context, in our modern day context, there are many different news reports and there are different, you know, ways of people trying to sway policy. 
um, that point to an upsurge of mental health crises that most of the adults face in the workplace. So, for instance, most of our listeners, I'm sure, are, are you know, young professionals and they're workers and they come up, may go through some anxiety issues or they may be, you know, uh, have withdrawal symptoms because of work. So what does that say about the progress of some of the mental health services and support programs um, that are currently existing for people? And also, you know, how are, if at all, children even affected, you know, secondarily or subsequently, mm -hmm. if their guardians or parents or just, mm -hmm. you know, basically, you know, the adults in the room are suffering from um, depressive symptoms as well? Well, yes. <laughs> Mental health in the workplace is a really uh, worldwide issue now. And I think this year in the mental mental health awareness year, um, mental health in workplace has been been a great concern. Um, in the Asian society, I think in the culture that we work with, employers expect employees to work especially hard and mm. there is no work-life balance. I think there is a work-life balance and individuals, I think, need to acknowledge this need for themselves and employers have to respect that you know, once you're out of the office or during the weekends, it's your private time. You can't call them, email them and expect them to, you know, immediately attend to the work at hand. And also, like you said, right, it does impact. Mental health will impact on productivity. So, and it will affect the productivity of the company. And also impacts on family relationships, individual relationships, marriages, and for parents, and that will impact the quality of care we give to our children. So there's a spiraling effect. So when children are impacted, that means they're not getting caught. They will then suffer from their own mental health issues. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important. And I think corporations have to, to realize this. You can't push people to the limit and there must be a point where you say okay work is work you know weekends are weekends and holidays is necessary really and they should support that and one of the re one of the ways that an employer can support that is actually having it included in medical health benefits which I think it isn't at the moment so you know you can claim medical expenses for psychiatry for yes. seeing a psychiatry a psychologist or or even for counselling, um, and for insurance to provide for that. I think AIA now covers um, medical insurance for chronic mental illness that requires medical leave. Mm. So, But that's, I think it's a huge step, but it's not enough, obviously. But do you think that's also limited because it doesn't cover people that can't really afford these yes, insurance Yes, of course coverages? it doesn't. Yeah. You're just talking about people who are employed in a corporation that provides health benefits exactly. and, you know, that sort of thing. But if they don't, then then I think, you know, there are other ways. Like, let's say if you if you ha you're, if you have a factory, factory workers must suffer from it. They're doing such tedious, boring... I mean, it's very repetitive work. So I'm sure it, it also impacts their mental illness. Perhaps we could have, like, every factory, every workplace, at least have a counsellor. You might not have psychiatrists or a or a psychologist, but just a counsellor who they can see to to, uh, to help them cope with just normal stress, you know, like anxiety, insomnia, that sort of thing. So if you address something smaller, hopefully it 
doesn't lead to the bigger mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and maybe education at schools as well. So everything actually it's all related isn't it it's all interrelated so if you have mental illness and if you declare that you're mentally you have uh, mental health issues you should not be prejudiced when applying for a job because I think it is here so so all those are part of the taboos that are related to or issues related to mental health issues which you know obviously with more awareness and with more policy changes, hopefully, you know, these issues will be addressed Mm. for everyone. Speaking of these policies and laws, you know, that are in place or not even, like I'm sure there is a huge shortage of such comprehensive policies that cover mental health as actual, you know, it should be a concern as a public health, like every other physical health issue is, right? So what are your views of this? You know, some say that it also could even amount to a national emergency, given Mm. some of the suicide rates that are also on the rise. So what... What are your views as someone that has written about it, talked about it with people that the government should and ought to do? Lately, the last few years, there have been more concerns and about these issues. I think Dr. Sri Wan Aziza has recently said that health policies should be reviewed um, because statistics, as you say, are alarming. Um, but we must also understand that the Malaysia Mental Health Act is only was only in place in 2001 mm-hmm. and it wasn't actually activated until there were rules and regulations in place in 2010. So it's all relatively new in Malaysia. We just don't have enough trained psychiatrists, psychologists to cope actually with the numbers. So we need to put in more money to encourage people to take up these jobs as psychiatrists. I think um, World Health Organization recommendation for the ratio of psychiatrists to the population is 1 to 10,000. But in Malaysia, the ratio is 1 to 200,000. So definitely there's a a shortage of medical help um, for Malaysians. And also the distribution of of psychiatrists are not even they're all concentrated in urban areas which maybe it is more needed but definitely we need a lot more psychiatrists and trained psychiatrists and trained psychologists in place and perhaps also have an institute of mental health to be set up where you can to boost understanding and treatment of mental health through research Mm. into available symptoms drugs and treatment because it seems stagnant to me. I mean, the same drugs keep re- being repeated right. and used. And that was like, since my Abbas days, you know, to now, it's like, what, what happened? There's no, there seemed to be no available research or so no progress like in terms. Exactly. Give, yeah. yeah. And treatment, you know, I mean, surely through, I don't know, medical research hasn't really progressed that much. Mm, maybe because in, in there's relation. no funding that goes into exactly. it, Exactly. Right? Because maybe they don't think it's important enough or, I mean, I don't want to be cynical, but it's all about I pharmaceutical making money. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's important to take steps to prevent the illness from escalating mm. and through education perhaps is the first place and research and more money being pumped into um, areas that require it. 
Mm. Yeah. Let's just talk about, you know, reforms, you know, really quickly when you said that you, when you say that, you know, how do, for instance, books, people will say, okay, you're, you're an advocate, you definitely stand up for it. But how would just writing about it through fiction, you know, you know, like yours that target children specifically move the needle towards reform? What would you say to those people that would say that? Like, why just use fiction? Maybe you should go into the government. You should talk to the legislators. I think writing a children's book, it's accessible. Um, it's And it's an easy way to talk about a very difficult subject. And yeah. it's, it's a great, like I said earlier, it's a great tool to start a conversation. It's a great tool to, to use in, in educating someone about depression. And... Using fiction is easier for children to understand. I think accessibility is is the key word here for right. for books. Unfortunately, the Grey Bird is is in English, and I'm hoping if anyone out there is interested, <laughs> um, I hope to get it translated in Bahasa. Um, to be fair, actually, um, Grey Bear Days was translated in Vietnamese and they took up yeah and they took up the book and there as well the funds that was collected for this from the sale of the book went to I think it's called the Rose Charity mm. where it's based in Vietnam based in, in Ho Chi Minh and it's a it's a center for um, for abused children yeah. um, so these are reformative in nature if you think about it as well yes maybe but I've never thought of it in that in that way, I just, I just wrote it because I just really felt that there was a story and there's a need to it. I, I think I didn't look at it in, a, in bigger terms. Perhaps, hmm. perhaps it is, but it will only be so if it's very widely available. Right, so, right. I mean, if this speaks to people that are in the publishing industry, then reach out for sure. You know, I'm just an email away. Um, but. You know, let's just maybe look at mental health in a different world in our Malaysian society, in a world where people are already vulnerable as soon as they step into the country, you know, refugees and asylum seekers. Mm -hmm. So they are so neglected and sidelined and basically invisibilized mm. by, you know, the not just the law itself that doesn't even recognize refugees, but even just the social ills that are in place mm. towards these aliens or foreigners that would, you know, quote unquote, take up my jobs. Um, what would you say that refugee asylum seeker children go through? Have you ever talked to them? Have you met them? Um, I have um, through when I was working on the book, the Fuji book, the Fuji coffee table book. Um, that you know um, has been published now. I think yes, um, yes, and I think studies have shown that refugees are more likely to experience mental health issues than the local population. They suffer higher rates of depression, anxiety disorders than the rest of the population. I think it's obviously it's their vulnerability is linked to the experience before leaving their home country because of war or persecution. So leading to trauma and even coming out of their home country into, let's say, Malaysia. I mean, conditions aren't exactly ideal for them, right? They're separated from their family. They have lost family members. And the housing and poor education or lack of facilities that they have to endure, just loss of hope and 
dignity, I think, causes them to be vulnerable to mental illness. With children, I'm not sure, because when they're very young, children are very resilient because they're very hopeful and joyful. And that's what I found, actually, when I was working with the children um, at Fuji School. They all have ambitions. They all have hopes. They all... they all feel they have this future, which is wonderful because they are children. Children are joyful. They don't know the reality until maybe it hits them at 18 when they feel... I mean, some of the children say they want to be doctors. And I think, at what level would, would you be able to receive your education? I mean, where are the financing for your education coming from? So all these practical things are not within their, I suppose, mental capabilities to think in in such um in in that way because they're, mm-hmm. they're just children so you kind of name dropped the coffee table fuji school book yes. right so maybe you can kind of tell our listeners and you know just everybody else that have heard of the fuji school's coffee table book but don't know really the process behind it yeah. how did you get on board writing it and why was it so important for you to get on board in the first place I'm so excited about this. I was it was such an honor for me to be part of this amazing book to celebrate 10 years of Fuji School. When I first wanted to launch Grey Bear Days, I asked Debbie whether she would read the book for me. She agreed to do it in spite of a very busy wedding schedule. I've always been an admirer of Debbie Henry's work. The way she works tirelessly for Fuji School is very admirable. She made it possible for refugee children to have an education. To me, that's huge. So when she asked me to help conceptualise, write and, you know, with produce the book, I obviously was more than happy to agree. Mm. Um, (laughs) Why wouldn't you be? (laughs) Actually, it was funny because I didn't know the children at the school, but... We decided that the book had to showcase these wonderful children. Anyway, so I conducted a few workshops with them so that I could, you know, meet and spend time with them. Mm-hmm. So during that workshops, we presented their views and showcased their art and writing and some of the experiences to be shared in the book. So the book is really about them. It's very colourful, interesting, and it was deliberately kept, we deliberately kept our writings to the minimum because the book is about them and it's really to showcase the children's work and what they can do and, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and what they have been able to achieve, actually, and flourish in a very, in this wonderful environment. And I think that's very important. I think refugee children, like any other children, if you give them the right environment, the educational stimulus, they can thrive and Mm. flourish. And, you know, subsequently become contributed to the society. So I don't... So, yes. So I believe every child has the right to education. That is a very powerful thing to say. And and on that note, um, that's a wrap. Thank you so much, Sabrina, for taking part in this interview. Um, I hope, you know, we both not only like had a good, healthy conversation about this, but that other people will also share this and they'll be able to talk about things that have always been in the dark. Yes, I hope so. Yep. All right. Thank Thank you. you very much. All right, and that's a wrap. Thanks for listening, and do subscribe to Justice On Air wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tune in to our next episode out next month.